Our guest today is Jen Fry. Jen was a Division II volleyball player who then coached in college for over 15 years, including stints at Elon University, University of Illinois, Washington State University, and Norfolk State. Today, Jen is a social justice educator, assisting college athletics administrations, staff, coaches, and athletes, training them through an anti-racist lens on issues of race, inclusion, intersectionality, diversity, and equity. She's also currently working on her PhD in geography at Michigan State University. I really appreciated the opportunity to get to know Jen through this podcast. I love everything she had to say, and I'm really grateful that she contributed to this project. I've been following her for a while on Twitter. She's a great follower. I recommend you check her out at, at Jen Fry Talks. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Jen Fry. Yeah, so let's talk about um, sort of the market. And you said that you're in high, high demand these days, um, as you should have always been. But what's been, uh, tell me more about like the change. Um, what are especially athletic departments looking for? Um, what's sort of been the shift like based on what you know about the market for um, anti-racism practices, understanding within sports? Yeah, um, I think the difference in the market is it's being talked about more explicitly. Mm-hmm. Where before you you could talk about, but you kind of had to tiptoe around some stuff. And mm-hmm. with this, it's more explicit. They're using words of whiteness and you know white supremacy and systemic racism and things that you would not have heard them talking about even a year ago. So I feel like the conversation is more nuanced. And athletic departments are realizing also it's not good enough to just say like, well, you know, we don't tolerate racism here. Like that, that's mm-hmm. just not good enough anymore because that's so open and vague. And most yeah. times when people say that, they mean the really overt stuff, but also they mean the very overt f- stuff from athletes. Like let's, let's be honest, right? We've seen mm-hmm. some very overt stuff from coaches who still keep mm-hmm. their jobs. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And so I think it's, it's really kind of, more of a holistic aspect, not just a, we don't tolerate racism, but how is racism showing up? What is our staff doing? What is our coaches doing? What problematic things are our administration doing that we Mm -hmm. need to start fixing? What type of rules, policy procedures do we need to start looking at more? So looking at with a more holistic and nuanced picture, instead Mm -hmm. of just saying, well, we don't, we don't tolerate racism and and leaving Mm -hmm. it very generic at that. Mm -hmm. For sure. Let's back up a little bit. I want to get to know how Jen Fry became Jen Fry and how was your life outlook formed? how did you come into this work? So maybe let's start, uh, if you would, uh, what was it like for you growing up? I know you said you grew up with a single mom. Um, what do you remember about those days growing up? Um, so I'm actually the, the baby of six kids. So the others are substantially like 10, 15 years older. And wow. so I grew up like, and they all lived in Canada. So I, I grew up really as a single child, but like, I just remember as weird as it sounds, it's just, a lot of freedom, right? Because my mom would work two jobs or um, I just had freedom that I realized now a lot of kids didn't have. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, my mom, I never had a curfew. She just said, please come home at a reasonable hour. 
And so because I didn't have those rules on me, because I'm like a feral cat, right? You put rules on me. I'm like, <laughs> like a cat on a leash, like just like trying to get off, right? Yeah. Um, but like she, I don't know if knowingly or unknowingly, or maybe she was just tired, right? The six kids, she's like, just just don't die. Like, I just need you to come back. But right. she didn't really put a lot of rules on me on stuff I couldn't do. Um, like I said, I never had a curfew. So when I would go to, to parties as a high schooler, um, I wouldn't really stay out late. Um, I wouldn't drink. Like I, I don't want to sound like a good two shoes, but I, I didn't feel the need to to break these limits because I didn't have them on me, right? I mean, I would just be out and about, just wandering around. Like I mean, I, I had jobs since I was like fourteen, mm -hmm. so I always was working and always trying to have my own money. Because um, my mom, when I was, I don't know, maybe like ten or eleven, said something that has always stuck with me. And I remember I wanted these pair of gray high top Nikes and they're mm -hmm. like $80. And at this time, my mom, I mean, she graduated high school. She was working at the library and she said, I can buy them for you, but I just want you to know that that will take me eight, eight or nine hours of work to buy those. Right. And that really put it in perspective because you don't think of the amount of work that goes to the money, right? As a kid, it's just, I want this. Mm -hmm. And so it just really made me just look at money a little differently of how much work goes into it. Um, and so I just, yeah, I just had just freedom to really do stuff. I mean, I, when I was 11, I played Pop Warner football. Mm -hmm. I went to go try out and they were like, oh, the cheerleading's over there. I was like, no, I want to play football. <laughs> and they're like, well, we'll wow. get your mom. And my mom was like, she wants to play football, right? So mm -hmm. I've always been able to do a lot of things that I realized other people, especially other girls, weren't able to do. So yeah. I was playing a lot of sports, working, just really into everything, but not really, like, but staying out of trouble. But also, I I will have the caveat. I did have a very smart mouth when I was a kid, <laughs> so there is the caveat of that. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, let's talk a little bit more about your sporting experience. So you said you played a lot of sports. I'm guessing mm -hmm. um, end up specializing in volleyball, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, playing at a pretty high level in, in college. What was your volleyball and, and college athletics experience like? It was it was two kind of separate things because I played at junior college and I transferred to a four year. And so kind of just going with like my high school experience, it was just very different as a black female. My volleyball coach was a black woman. My track coach was a black male. Yeah. My soccer coach was a Latinx male. So I was always surrounded by people of color who look like me in high positions. Hmm. Right, I grew up in mm -hmm. Arizona, five minutes from the Mexican border. So a majority minority city. So I never was the only person of color on my team. Right. There's always several of them, even when I transferred, um, even when I went to my junior college and then transferred to my four year. And mm -hmm. it, it was just such a different experience. Right. Because, I mean, and this might, you know, gross some people out, but like there was only a limited number of, of workout sh shirts and spandex. So you get there early, you know, they're washed every day. You get there early, you get your size, you get there late. You just grab some random size. There was no like you get your own gear. Right. And people are like, oh, my gosh, how could you do that? I don't know. It was like in 98. You just were glad that practice closed, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it just was, I don't know, you know, busing everywhere. Um, I, I've always had this, you know, I wasn't used to having a lot of stuff when I played. So it's always fascinating when I see these teams, you know, when they get their stuff in preseason, they get all these shoes and clothes. Mm -hmm. And I just never had that experience, right? I mean, we would drive vans everywhere. Maybe we'd get a bus if it was a longer trip. So I, mm -hmm. that was just kind of my experience. It's very, uh, I don't want to say low socioeconomic, but kind of in that way, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think my experience was good for me. Um, I went from a junior college. I, when I was in high school, I played three sports. And 
I played club soccer more. I played club volleyball, maybe like I think my junior year in the spring and then my senior year in the spring. But mm-hmm. I paid like $600 a month, a year, right? Mm-hmm. Like now it's 10,000, 8,000. Right. And yeah. so I just, I just didn't know what I didn't know. And so mm-hmm. I was super lucky in that we got this phenomenal coach, Carrie Messersmith at the junior college. I think she was my club coach for a season. And I mm-hmm. went there um, and I'm so glad I went to junior college. I know a lot of people now it's all about D1, but I'm like, junior right. college is good because it's so much smaller. And as freshmen, sophomores, you get immediate playing time. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you, you're coming in to transferring, expecting to play and, and having that higher knowledge. Um, and yeah. so that was just a good experience of being able to, to play um, and I transferred to a D2 again, like I love, you know, D2. I love the motto. I just love everything about it. Um, and so I enjoyed my experience at a smaller school. I think if I would have went to a big school of 20, 30, 40,000, mm-hmm. I would have absolutely been lost in those classes of 400 students would have right. been lost. Right. I mean, I, I worked at um, the last two schools most recently were Elon and Duke. Mm-hmm. Um, Elon's like five, 6,000 Duke is 6,000. Elon's a lot smaller than Duke, but like I still was able to navigate, get to know everyone. Um, I couldn't imagine going to a school, even working at a school with like 50,000. I'm doing my, my PhD at Michigan State, 50,000 people here. I'm having to learn bus routes. And it's just so different than mm-hmm. being at a smaller school. And so I right. just, I really enjoyed my experiences and I felt like they were what I needed at that age. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Okay. So then, I think you you pretty much went directly into to coaching after playing, mm-hmm. um, you know, end up coaching at a, at a really high level, high major division one. Um, but I was really interested in, when I saw that you coached at Norfolk State. What um, what sort of differences did you notice um, coaching and working at an HBCU as opposed to a predominantly white institution? Um, and maybe if you could speak to sort of what, what you think about the athletic experience uh, and how that might be different between uh, PWIs and HBCUs. Yeah, you know, it's again from Arizona, I didn't even know they existed. Um, mm-hmm. We didn't get MLK Day till 1999. Mm. Like, and it was actually a fight because the Super Bowl was like, if we don't, if, if Arizona doesn't pass this, we're going to pull out. So it was really the Super Bowl like strong arming them to get MLK wow. Day. Didn't know um, that. Yep, yep, interesting fact about my state. But I didn't know this existed. Um, and there was a rap group, TLC. And I remember mm-hmm. they did this video. I can't remember what song it was for, but they were actually at Grambling. And I was like, what? Mm-hmm. This exists? But I still didn't understand it. And um, I went to school, when I transferred to my four year, I went to school in Alabama. So it was around those more, around more black people and mm-hmm. just really loved and thrived, that, thrived in that experience. And then Working at HBCU, I think, is such a different experience because now you're you're you are feeling how it feels to be the majority, right? Mm-hmm. You're so used to to having to explain p- to people about your experiences or or what things are going on, and it's just so different when you're at HBCU because you're in the my in the majority, right? It's one of the only times that Black students are just able to just be Black at a school. Mm-hmm. Right. That's you're going to be your only time is at HBCU. And so mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. You know, I, my team was diverse. We had I, we had um, black, white. We had, I think, some Hawaiians. We were, were pretty diverse in our team. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, that just adds to the dynamics of being at HBCU. But for me, it was 
like it made me just more um, loving of my blackness, right? Mm -hmm. You're at homecoming and homecoming at HBCUs is such a big thing, right? Like, yes, at all schools, homecoming is big, but HBCUs, it's just so different, right? And so um, it really is like a family. I mean, it, it, I'm, that's one thing I miss is like, I, you know, I, I'm kind of like an honorary member of NCCU alumni and that's my homecoming going there every year to see everybody. And so it's just such a different experience. And I, and I feel like, you know, black students, it just gives them a great opportunity to just be black and figure out their identity in a mm-hmm. space that isn't potentially traumatic to them. I want to talk to you, Jen, more about uh, your practice now um, and trying to, to help the, the sports world be anti-racist. Um, but I've, you know, I've been listening and, and following you from afar uh, for a little while now, and I know you like the ground conversations and definitions. So I think two important definitions just for our purposes today would be um, if you would define race and racism as we're talking today. Yeah, race is, well, first, I think when we talk about those, we have to kind of take a step back and look at how language Mm -hmm. is formed, Mm -hmm. right? Because we don't, when we're taught language, we're kind of taught like it is what it is, right? We don't think of like, when you define stuff, you have power. Mm -hmm. And especially if you get to define people, social classes, identities, you have power. Mm-hmm. And so that's always kind of a hard thing for people to chew on because they're like, well, I'll go look up Merriam-Webster's dictionary of these words. And I'm like, I, and I do that too. But you also have to think of like when Merriam dictionary started was in 1828, who started it? Right. White men, right? Mm-hmm. 25 or so years before slavery. And so those mm-hmm. contexts needs to be attached to definitions because if we don't think about that, then we don't understand how words are steeped in power mm-hmm. and control. Like we just, we don't think of it that way. We think that words mean the same to everybody the same way. And it just, it doesn't. And so then when we talk about racism or talk about other words, people want to say, well, the opposite. And I'm like, but there can't be an opposite to certain words because of who defined them and the power behind it. And so um, I was listening to Code Switch, this episode, and this, um, this young poet, Latinx queer poet, um, Denise Froman, said this great phrase. She was, I can't remember what she was listening to, but she said, this woman, Ursula, said, you can't start a new world from an old language. Hmm. Wow. And, and we're trying to develop this new world from a, from a language that's steeped in white supremacy and mm-hmm. started by people who, right, develop social classes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like we have to give have those caveats to it. And so when I talk about race, you know, race really is just a social construct developed on your phenotypical characteristics. Hair, nose, skin, th- that's really what it is. And so like I tell people, it's a socially constructed word steeped in power that has horrifying results. Mm-hmm. Because if I can define... Um, like what class you're in by your identity, I have a lot of power. Yeah. And so many times people don't think of the word race as being something that people made, right? right. They think of it just as something that just is there. And and we've just really right. been taught that like words and definitions are just there. 
mm-hmm. and not to critically think about, well, where did they come from? Mm-hmm. Right. Because they have to come from somewhere. And so it re- like, and, and just looking at race is something that's made up, right? If you look at DNA test, ancestry.com test, paternity test, race is not going to come up. Mm-hmm. It's this thing. And when I present, I talk on the black, white binaries because mm-hmm. that's really what upholds our world or excuse me, our, our U.S. is the black, white binary and everything goes in it. Yeah. Everything, you know, depending on how light and dark you are and also where the government wants you to fall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about race in more of a critical lens of who developed it, why they develop it, mm-hmm. not a, this word's just here and is what it is. Right. Right. And then when we look at supremacy or if we look at racism, we have to look at something that is based in supremacy and power. Mm-hmm. Because many times, again, we look at racism as just like when you look up the Miriam's dictionary um, definition, this is just a definition. So this is what it is. It's like, well, we have to look, if you scroll all the way down Miriam Webster's, they say that this word really didn't start showing up till the, um, like the early 20th century. Hmm. And so early 1900s where you had Jim Crow, right? Lynching, segregation, all these things going on, this word came up and they say, that's not to mean that it wasn't occurring back then. This is when we first started showing up. And it's like, okay, but then think about who decided at that time for it to show up. It wasn't black people. It wasn't indigenous people because that stuff has already been happening to them. Mm -hmm. And so who has the power, right? So looking at racism as a system, um, actually, let me pull up my dictionary, even though I say it a million times. But it's a system in which one race maintains supremacy over another through a set of attitudes, behaviors, but most importantly, social structures and institutional power. Mm -hmm. And so we forget about the social structures and institutional power and really just look at the behaviors and attitudes. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, we have this idea of looking at racism or a racist as someone, you know, with the KKK hood on, yelling the N-word, running around with um, a Confederate flag. And so because Mm -hmm. we have this very narrow definition of a racist or racism, everything Mm -hmm. else that occurs, well, maybe they just didn't mean that, or a lot of like maybes and buts and you don't know and that's Uh your interpretation and like those coded words when people are relying on such a narrow definition that does not include them, right? Right. They're going to make sure that that definition kind of like gerrymandering goes around anything that they'll do to not include them, to Mm. not maybe have them saying, well, maybe... I'm actually doing these things. So I'm instead I'm going to keep it very narrow. So I'm not it. Yeah. Hmm. And so getting people to look at racism, like I said, yes, attitudes and behaviors, but that social structure and institutional power is really important because you'll hear people say, well, we just need to work on hearts and heads will come. I'm like, no, baby, that it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You can't, because the reality of the situation is that racism is so ingrained into every single aspect of our lives mm-hmm. that we don't even realize we're doing it or it's occurring. Yep. yep. Right. And so because you don't know it's occurring, you could change the heart all you want until you really change the head and get people to start understanding the problematic things they, they say or they do can be deemed as, as racism. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's why it's like important that we have to look at social structures and institutional power, because if you look at the attitude of, well, you know, it's discrimination or hate and not look at how people aren't hiring because of their name, you know, or the criminal justice system or mm-hmm. the school to prison pipeline or all of these things. Then you're not looking at you're not actually going to change something. 
right? Because a lot of the change also has to do with you critically thinking about yourself and the things that you have to change in order for a system to change. In sports, when we're looking, and you're talking about social structures and institutional power, um, and, and maybe you can talk about across sports too. Uh, my bias is towards basketball. It's what I played. It's what I watch. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the social dynamic in sports? Um, who's playing? Who's coaching? Who are the uh, administrators? Maybe we can focus on on college sports. Um, and, and what's your view there? Yeah, I mean, if we just look at the power, the hegemonic power within that we have, um, you know, administrators are like 83% white, mm-hmm. right? Coaches are in the above 80s white, and that's division one through three. Mm-hmm. Um, in division three, I believe there were more women coaching male sports than there were black head coaches. Say that again, one more time. There are There were more women coaching male sports, which we know is already very rare, mm-hmm. than there were black head coaches. Wow. Would not have thought that. Right? Isn't that an wow. astounding stat? Um, mm-hmm. And so, and that comes from the um, the tides. Let me pull it up. That comes through um, UCF. Yep, up lab check. Of it. Yep, through lab check. Um, I'll see if I can find it, but like that was just a very astounding, um, thing to read. Right. And so I I think we have to understand, you know, that the fact of the matter is, is that, um, yeah, here it is. African-Americans were so underrepresented as head coaches in division three, that the percentage of women coaching men's teams was higher than the percentage of African-Americans coaching men's teams. So 6.2 to 5.0. Wow. It's incredible. Yeah. And Hmm. so um, I just, we have to like, who's in power and therefore what decisions are they making? Right. So again, we see that administrators and coaches, senior staff are all overwhelmingly white. Yeah. And then um, they might hire one black or person of color. Mm -hmm. And then that becomes the black or person of color um, position. Right. And they might leave and then someone else and there's no making any other positions black or brown. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're seeing this type of thing occurring so that, you know, you might have a black athlete who can legitimately go through his his or her day or their day and never have contact with someone black or brown. Right. Mm -hmm. Their coaching staff is all white. Their athletic trainers are all white or the people that work with them are white. Their strength and conditioning mm-hmm. coaches are white. Their academic advisors are all white. Maybe, you know, whenever I, I, I do webinars or, um, or meetings, I ask the athletes to put their year in and put how many people of color have they had as professors. And mm-hmm. so then you have seniors or juniors that are like zero, one. So they might even go through college of never having a person of color professor. Right. And so just the power that that has, and then especially when we look at football, where football rosters are over 50, 60% black. And you will see coaching staff that have one or two black people Mm -hmm. or the, the, or they might have more, but they're not in any power positions, right? They're all GAs or interns or video people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's like how, I just don't even understand how that's honestly is possible 
that you have a sport that is 60%, 50% black, and you're not telling me that there's not a good enough pipeline to start developing for black coaches, right? Because what is it like 3% go to play pro? So it's yeah. not even a situation where they can say, well, look, 60% of our, our, our black athletes are going to play pro. You can't even mm-hmm. say that. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what are you doing or not doing to start grooming them to be coaches? And so I think it's like, you know, or we'll see that with basketball. I think it's like 55% are, are athletes of color, you know, at division one, of course, division three, it's completely different. But, um, you know, you see that at division one and then you see staffs that are completely white. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. I just don't see how administrations find that acceptable. Mm-hmm. That's just like, I've seen women's teams coached by all male staffs. I'm like, how do administrators allow that? Yeah. But when you have all male senior staff or one or two, it it's perfectly fine to them. Mm-hmm. Which is if you have all senior staff that's white, it's perfectly fine to them that the coaching staff is all white. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, people say, well, what does it matter if if the best person gets the job? I'm like, well, that is always used and it's majority white people who get the jobs. Yeah. Because when black and brown people get the jobs, it's like, well, affirmative action, you knew someone, you did something, not a, this was the best person to get the job, right? So there's that double-edged sword of, well, the best person gets the job and it's always all white people. So it's kind of giving the assumption that only the white people were the best people for the job. And if a black or brown person does get it, they have to have exceptional qualifications, right? Mm -hmm. They have to have exceptional experience in order to even breathe getting the interview or else we'll see very mediocre people with resumes. I think we can attest to it, Zach, where we've seen people were like, this is your resume. (laughs) And they're getting these jobs. And we're like, how did you get these jobs? And so just that difference of what is looked at on a black or brown person's resume and what they need to have versus a white person, especially a white male. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so the opportunities for growth um, for potential are really not there with black and brown coaches or staff members, right? Yeah. We don't get those opportunities. I think um, mm-hmm. a perfect example is like Cliff Kingsbury, right? Like he got, how do you get fired up? <laughs> he got fired at Texas tech as the head coach and you get fired up to then get a promotion yeah. to a professional head coach's job. How does that mm-hmm. even happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and the elephant in the room, too, that we haven't talked about is the money that's being exchanged. Oh. And you talk about, you know, just the, the – the, we can I mean, you, you, can, you can detail it. Um, the millions of dollars that predominantly white coaches are making while black athletes um, aren't allowed to, to earn a, a dime for their athletic mm-hmm. performance or their likeness. Uh, and, and things are, are hopefully starting to change in that way. But um, that's that's always been the elephant in the room. And how can you be – never understood. How could you be a white coach uh, living in a million-dollar house uh, knowing what some of your players are going through and feel comfortable with that? Um, so be curious to see when you're working with teams and, and departments and and uh, coaches especially, and especially with, with white coaches coaching predominantly black athletes, how are, uh, how are, you know, and we're talking often football and basketball, how are they reacting um, 
have you seen a change there in the in the last few months? How how has that been? Yeah, you know, I, I think that it's a really interesting thing because the people who are most against it are the ones who are making millions of dollars, right? Mm-hmm. Those are the ones who are against it. I mean, there was an article that Dabo Sweeney came out and said, um, if we start paying players, I'll quit. And I'm like, you get paid $10 million a year. Where are you going to go and make that much money? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Right. Like, I don't even think, <laughs> uh, do do NFL coaches make that much? Let me actually look those NFL salaries. Let's take a look real quick. Very curious. Yeah, I mean, you have the top ones. You have Bilicek making twelve million a year or mm-hmm. annual set. Yeah, Pete Carroll eleven, John Gruden ten, Sean Payton nine point eight. But like, you're not gonna jump immediately to to NFL making over 10 million. You're not going to be making over Pete Carroll, right? Mm-hmm. And so the fact that you are saying if we pay these athletes, I'm going to quit my 10 million dollar job. Yeah. <laughs> who, who who what? Right? And so I think that idea that I have to that you know, I have to stop them from getting money. And for me, I'll be honest, like I think the idea of schools paying athletes, I just think while it's feasible for some schools, mm-hmm. it's not for all of them. And then that's where you'll potentially see in the Olympic sports having to be cut. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think li- like Liberty is an exception because they have such a big online, um, like online student, it's like 50,000, where other schools don't have that. Mm-hmm. Right. So they have the means to pay, but other smaller mid- uh, mid-level D1s don't. And so I think that to have schools to try and pay athletes, I, I just can't see it happening. But them getting paid for their likeness, absolutely. Yeah. Right? Yeah. If this building company wants to pay Jen Fry and is giving me a house, okay. Right? Like that part I don't see the issue with. If mm-hmm. And I think that can also help all sports because the fencing kids can get a, a fencing deal. Right? Volleyball, yeah. swimming. I mean – I think there was, um, after the Olympics, the last one, Katie Ledecky, the swimmer from Stanford, mm-hmm. she had to make a decision, go pro or, or swim in college. Right. Right? Passing up all that money or stay in college. Mm-hmm. And people shouldn't have to do that. Right? Yeah. You should be able to, to be able to get endorsements and still be in college. Mm-hmm. Um, the, gym, the gymnast from UCLA – I, Caitlin something. She was the one who was yeah, phenomenal. She, she even, yep. She was the one who was like, I'm not at the level of like um, Olympics. Mm-hmm. So my time to have made money was in college. Yeah. She, she could have made so much and we're limiting, limiting those opportunities for them. And, mm-hmm. and it's like, I understand also, you know, schools might say, well, if, if, um, Zion gets a Nike deal himself, then Duke isn't getting that Nike deal. Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, if you think about it back in when he played, they had the Zion camera for CBS. You have a oh, camera yeah. for one wow. person and they're not making money, right? When he yeah. um, when he broke his Nike shoe in that game, everyone thought he hurt himself. I think stock mm-hmm. for Nike dropped, like it was like 1 billion. <laughs> And that kid's not getting any money. And then we have like the one and dones who come. And I just think it's like, let them have their endorsements. It's mm-hmm. because honestly, Nike's still going to endorse Duke 
because of how many people are watching that game. Yeah. Right. People are still going to buy the gear and all those things. And so I think it's, it's, I, I definitely think, you know, if they want to make money off autograph, mm-hmm. I, because here's also my problem with it is that, well, they're not allowed to do this. Guess what happens when I'm in the mall? Who's the, um, the new basketball coach at Michigan? Uh, Jawan Howard. Jawan Howard. I'm walking through the mall and seeing Jawan Howard ads, right? I'm just, I'm seeing, um, who is it? Um, Nick Saban has the Aflac. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're telling these, these athletes, you can't get paid for your likeness, but then their coaches are making millions off all of these endorsements that they're getting to mm-hmm. do. Let's talk more um, about your practice and as much as you would share some of your secret sauce. So uh, maybe walk me through some of the exercises you do um, with teams and departments. Uh, how do you start it off? Maybe what, what are some guardrails or community rules you start off with? Um, so I think that the first thing I start off with is, is like naming the emotion that people are going to feel. Mm-hmm. Um, have you done any DEI sessions? Yeah, but I'm trying to understand. Been through a few um, at work now, um, part of the DEI task force. So we're we're doing stuff, but I've always wondered, like, um, what are the trainings really? You know, because mm-hmm. I've, I've kind of had it. Kind of seems um, like hodgepodge. Uh, it doesn't seem like. Uh, there's a real curriculum. Yeah. I haven't participated in anything where there's like a curriculum. Here's the, the order. You know what I mean? It's like one off here and there mm-hmm. unrelated, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And usually it's very reactive, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's uh, something happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's have this uh, one day training <laughs> or yep. one hour training. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so I think the, the first thing is, is, but when you're in the trainings, do people talk about like the shame and guilt you're probably going to feel? Um, I don't know if I've, I've heard that. Uh, it might've been said, but, but like you were like, but think about that. We're talking about this, this topic, which we've been socialized to not talk about, mm-hmm. right. To feel shame, to feel guilt. And no one talks about those emotions. No one talks about the fact that little kids see difference and they're like, mommy, why is that person got darker skin? And mommy's usually like, no, oh my gosh, Zach, don't say anything. <laughs> we're, we're so sorry. We, I, we apologize. We don't see color. Don't, no, don't ever say that. And right away, talking about difference or race is attached to guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. And, and, and sessions don't talk about that. But I'm like, hey, here are the emotions you're probably going to feel. And it's okay. Yeah. You're going to feel like I tell people, you're going to, I hope you are as uncomfortable as humanly possible in my session. Like I want to be, I want to be tearing at your insides. You're so uncomfortable. Yeah. And many people don't say those things. They try and keep it superficial because they don't want to make people mad. And so if you, if you do this work, not trying to make people mad, you're not going to do the work. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like if you're playing, you're, if you're playing basketball and you're not trying to make an error, all you're going to do is make errors. Agreed. Right. When you try and pay, play very safe, safe doesn't do anything. doesn't win games. It, safety is nothing. And so I try and I, I, try kind of take the rails off right Mm -hmm. and say you're not going to feel safe it's going to be uncomfortable you're going to feel shame you're going to feel guilt and that's okay because you've been socialized to think that 
right? The world has socialized you. And so now that we understand these emotions, let's start talking. Mm-hmm. And so really talking about ground rules and, and talking about why they should have them for their teams, why they should have them for their staffs. And another thing I, I talk about is that um, you should have conflict, disagreement, healthy discourse, like you should have it on your team. And, and coaches do not want that because they're super uncomfortable. Mm. So because they're uncomfortable with conflict, they aren't going to have it on their teams, mm-hmm. right? They're going to try and push it away. And so now a place which you can be teaching your, your athletes how to have conflict, you're not teaching them that. Yeah. And so I really try and just like open up the stuff we don't think about that's kind of holding us back. Mm-hmm. And then also I, I, I scaffold the questions. So I'm not like, what's whiteness? And you're like, whoa, what the hell? But like, <laughs> hey, let's start talking and peeling back the layers of when did you even start thinking of these topics? How did you get your definition? And doing that work so that it's scaffold and getting people to critically think about themselves and talk about themselves mm-hmm. while we're going through this stuff. And also, I give a historical perspective. So I'm not like, this is the definition of racism and that's it. And people are trying to construct it in their mind. But like, here are examples of structural racism. Here are examples of institutional racism. Here are these examples and how are they tying into your life and your job and your family and school? Yeah. And so mm-hmm. really trying to, to scaffold it, to give them like a story that I'm shaping that they're not shaping. Well, the, the question of uh, when did you first start thinking of this stuff? Um, I really like that one and, and sort of getting people to interrogate the assumptions about themselves that they've made, like when did you realize you were fill in the blank, white, black, uh, Latino, whatever it is, uh, and start to think about how you came to form your identity. I'm not sure that most people uh, do that. I don't think white people do that as much. Um, But yeah, how about, um, what does an anti-racist coach look like? Maybe describe some behaviors um, and maybe some behaviors that you won't see. I would probably say if I were looking at anti-racist coach, someone who is really always diving deep, not only into their identity, but how their identity affects interactions with people. Yeah. Right. So like, um, an example would be if like one of my athletes was having issues at home. Mm-hmm. I am not going to be like, well, I don't really know much about, so I'm not going to say anything. I'll wait till they come and talk to me. But like, hey, I see you're having these problems at home. Yeah, You know, I understand as a white male, I can't understand X, Y, and Z, but I want to see what ways um, I can help you if you need help. Mm-hmm. Right. And so understand your identity, understand, I think an uh, anti-racist coach is someone who understands objectiveness doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I tell people, you know, I decided to just quit coaching. I didn't have a backup plan. I I just quit. And I was like, oh, we're going to hopefully this works out, right? Just kind of jumped with no parachute. But I did have the parachute of my mom's family money, right? Mm -hmm. My mom's family, white and Jewish, had uh, had wealth. Where Mm -hmm. if something happened, I knew I could depend on them. Mm -hmm. Other people don't have that. So when I say, like, I'm critical of my identity, I'm not going to tell you if you come to me like, Jen, 
I want to start this business like you did. What'd you do? I'm like, yeah, just quit your job. You can do it. And they have a, a husband or a wife and kids and they don't yeah. have any generational wealth. I, me understanding that you, I'm not objective and that I have these things that helped me. Mm-hmm. help me then understand my interaction with that person. So if you're like, yeah. Jen, I really want to start this business and quit. I'm like, okay, do you have money for this? Do you, how can you support this? What about insurance? What mm-hmm. about like, I'm going to ask you those questions. I'm not going to be like, yeah, just quit. Do it. Mm-hmm. I did it. Look at me. No, because that's not understanding my identity in relation to other people. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. And so I think that I think of anti-racist, you know, person or coach is willing, like looking at their handbook and not saying, well, this is just the way it's always is, but like, okay, who am I disproportionately affecting? Mm-hmm. Right? Like who am I disproportionately affecting by um, having these policies in place? Right. Mm-hmm. Who is not on my team able to understand the handbook? You know, there's just a theory called the standpoint theory, which is the most marginalized have the best view of society. And mm-hmm. So from that, like, do you have someone that's maybe first gen or English isn't their native language that you have look over the handbook? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. that's acknowledging that they're going to see stuff that you would never be able to see. Right. And it's saying like what policies and, and really interrogating the stuff that's occurring in the department mm-hmm. and who is it disproportionately affecting? It's being on search committees and, and willing to say things and, and really disrupt. I think it's like disrupt, 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 disrupt the norm. Know that there is no norm. It's just socially constructed. Hmm. Right. And, and really being able to, to do that. I think it's also giving more power to athletes. I mean, I'll tell you, when I was a head coach at 27, I had a, a you know, a, a rule book handbook that was, it could have been in all the encyclopedia <laughs> sets. <laughs> right. Cause as a young coach, you think you have more power by rules, but the reality is, is kids, these kids, they will figure out for you to have rule 1.592. And then rule 1.593, right? Because they will figure out all the little things that, well, it doesn't say this. You're like, well, crap, it really doesn't. And so you feel like when you're younger, to have more power is to have more rules. And that's Mm. not true because they're just going to find ways to break them versus how can you have less rules, but really teaching them and knowing that they're probably going to make mistakes. Yeah. I think um, also anti-racist coach is, is preparing to have those dialogues on race systems, you know, with their teams, with their staff and consistently having them. You know, many white people are like, well, I really believe in this, but I'm just worried about losing my job. And the reality is, is no white person's lost their job from doing this work. Like Mm. you you get promotions. Yeah. Right. Black and brown people, we lose our jobs. Yeah. Hmm. And, and uh, it's my hypothesis, too, that coaching in that way, uh, your athletes will perform better. You'll mm-hmm. win more games. Um, your athletes will like you more instead of just maybe fearing you or uh, mm-hmm. respecting your authority. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, to me, it's, it's to your advantage as a coach to, um, you know, kind of let the guard down. A lot of times I think coaches um, – are afraid to admit when they're not perfect because they're supposed to be the answers for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think sort of bringing that, that uh, authenticity and humanity back or not back, but, but into the situation as a coach and interrogating your identity um, and where you stand in our society and, and what's unique about you. I think that's 
a really good approach, not just the human humanity of it, but I think you'll win more games. You will. And I, I just think that um, the problem is, is that we don't think about that, right? The, mm -hmm. We say we holistically think about the athlete and want to help develop them. But are we understanding that to wholly, de wholly develop, holistically develop an athlete means I need to holistically look at myself? This podcast is a part of the Coaching for Civic Leadership Project, an inquiry into the art of coaching for civic leadership, which I describe as the act of coaching to improve our society, with an eye toward developing leadership, problem solving, and social interest and understanding. If you'd like to keep up with this project, you can subscribe to the podcast and also subscribe to updates, writings, and interviews on our website, coachingforcivicleadership.com. Mm -hmm.